0: From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Mitch Tyke
1: And I'm Joy Powers. Today on the show, we're bringing you the best of Bubbler Talk, our series which asks listeners what they want to learn about the Milwaukee area.
2: All the years I've lived in Milwaukee and driven north on water, just south of Wisconsin, there's a building on the east side that has ladybugs and I've wondered why the ladybugs are there. When
3: did the city start naming neighborhoods and why?
4: I've heard about ice cream cocktails in Milwaukee and wondering if there's something uniquely Milwaukee about them. Why is frozen custard such a big deal in Milwaukee?
0: We'll have those stories for you and more on Lake Effect. But first, the news.
1: This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Joy Powers. And I'm Mitch Tyke
0: For the last couple of years, WUWM has been reaching out to our listeners to ask what questions you have about the Milwaukee area.
1: Those questions led to answers in the form of our Bubbler Talk series. Today, we're showcasing our favorite Bubbler Talks from 2017.
0: In the next hour, we'll learn about the origins of Milwaukee neighborhood names, the city's abolitionist history, and many other stories from the area we call home. This is Bubbler Talk,
5: quenching Milwaukee's thirst for knowledge.
1: I'm Joy Powers from Lake Effect and Milwaukee Public Radio. And if you're listening to this, there's a good chance that you're also in Milwaukee. Perhaps you're in East Town or Sherman Park. You might be in Tippecanoe or Bayview, too. But whatever part of the city you're in, there's sure to be a name for it, and possibly a few names. If you're like River West resident Glenda Puhek, you may be wondering why. She wrote to Bubbler Talk to ask, When did the city start naming neighborhoods, and Why? That's Glenda talking with me in Walker's Point, where we met up to speak with an expert on Milwaukee history. Historian John Gerda is the author of Milwaukee, City of Neighborhoods, a book which answers Glenda in a lot of different ways. But her question starts with a kind of misconception that I'd like to get out of the way. Milwaukee neighborhoods aren't created by the city government.
6: Milwaukee does not have an official designation as Minneapolis does, uh, as Chicago does. Uh, A lot of cities don't, some do.
1: While there have been attempts to create an official city neighborhood map, Goethe says they never succeeded in making one.
6: They ended up with around 200 neighborhoods and every square inch was something. And you're going to put some round pegs and square holes if, if, you, if you try that.
1: 200 neighborhoods for a city that's less than 100 square miles. And that number might be right, but it's hard to say. Without an official designation from the city, neighborhood names are cultivated and circulated by everyday people. Which gets to Glenda's other question of how neighborhoods are named. It's a tough question to answer because there are a lot of different answers. Some names like Kilborn Town and Walkers Point were based on the people who founded the area. Others are based on former designations, like the historic Third Ward, which brings up another point. The broad use of these neighborhood names is a relatively recent development and wasn't as common for previous generations.
6: More often than not, people would talk about what ward they were from. So my grandmother on the south side, she was from the 14th Ward, which was the polar section of town. The 6th Ward was the near north side. Third Ward was the Irish neighborhood, then the Italian neighborhood. So those became kind of names, and the third ward has survived as a name, No, the others are gone.
1: While some neighborhoods have names that reflect their history, others were created later as a marketing tool or a way of uniting the community.
6: The biggest boom in neighborhood names would have been after the 60s. No, that's when you would have had the real proliferation of people trying to say, this is my turf, this is my territory, we're going to name it, we're going to claim it.
1: Some of these neighborhoods include Brewers Hill, named for its proximity to the Schlitz Brewery, or Harambe, which is the Swahili word for pulling together, an indication of its African-American population and the push to redefine the neighborhood in the 1970s. There are as many origin stories as there are neighborhoods in Milwaukee, but one thing to keep in mind is that none of the neighborhoods or names are static. They're constantly moving boundaries and evolving to reflect the people and places they represent.
6: I've talked about neighborhoods as quicksilver creations, you know, because you really can't put your finger on them. You know, they're, they're kind of, they're always, always kind of in motion.
1: Right now, there are new neighborhoods being formed. Gerda points to the New Harbor District as one such example. And the neighborhoods of tomorrow's Milwaukee are yet to be decided or named. Wisconsin has a nickname. You've seen it on
5: license plates, America's Dairyland. And in Milwaukee, you may have heard this moniker, Cream City. It intrigues Bubbler Talk listener Ann Brownfield, who asks, why was Milwaukee once referred to as Cream City? The answer might surprise you. It has nothing to do with the dairy industry.
7: Milwaukee is known as the Cream City because of the yellow cream-colored brick that were first discovered and made here in the 19th century.
5: Josh Ballou is tour and membership coordinator for Historic Milwaukee.
7: Those bricks were used uh, for many of the buildings and businesses, uh, breweries, schools, um, throughout the 19th century.
5: To take a look at some of the creamy colored structures, I met Ballou at the old Schlitz Brewery complex on the northern edge of downtown. He says it's one of many places to see Cream City brick.
8: This is just a good example pretty much
7: due to the size.
5: Ballou says cream colored bricks were first produced in Milwaukee in 1835 and quickly became popular because of their pleasing color. Architect Vince Micah has a fondness for the bricks and is surrounded by them daily. He's with the Kubala-Washatko Architects in Cedarburg. Its offices are in an old power plant built of Cream City brick. Micah shows me a historic photo. And here you can see what the Cedarburg Municipal Power Plant
7: looked like the day that we obtained it.
5: It Micah says you can find Cream City brick in older buildings up and down the coast of Lake Michigan. That's where the clay to make the bricks came from.
7: Well, what we have here in southeastern Wisconsin is the glacial lake deposits that deposits these silts and clays, and we can see them along the lakeshore of Lake Michigan and a little further inland. And that became a ready source of raw materials for making brick.
5: Micah says builders began to choose other types of bricks from other regions when trains and improved trucking gave them more options. There were downsides to using Cream City Brick. It's softer than some varieties, making the bricks less sturdy. And because of their porous nature, the bricks easily absorb soot, turning them black. Micah points to an example on the exterior of the old power plant.
7: That rusty muffler down there, that used to be the outlet from the turbines, from the diesel fumes. And that black penetrated into the brick. And we did some testing on it. And we could only get so far with it. And we said, you know what? That's the history of the building. We're going to let that be.
5: Micah says these days, though, most people appreciate the historic building material and have learned how to care for it properly. And decades after the Bricks' heyday, the nickname Cream City is still going strong. A number of businesses use it.
9: My name is Greg Hutterer. The name of our company is Cream City Caramels and Confections.
5: I met Hutterer at the downtown night market this week where he was selling the treats. He says he chose the name Cream City to connect the products to Milwaukee, his hometown. Besides, he adds, even though it's associated with building materials, not food, it just has a certain ring to it.
9: We thought because there's a lot of cream used in our caramels that people who weren't from Milwaukee, who wouldn't necessarily recognize the Cream City name as being Milwaukee, would think of cows and cream in that way.
10: I'm Rachel Morello. We get a lot of Bubbler Talk submissions asking about the way Milwaukeeans talk. What's with Milwaukee saying yet in place of still?
7: Why do people here say New Berlin instead of New Berlin, like the city in Germany?
4: I noticed the hard sort of O's, like Minnesota, Diet Coke instead of just Diet Coke.
10: (laughs) That last voice you heard was Grace Zupancic. She accepted our invitation to look into these lingo-related questions. The Cleveland, Ohio native moved to Wisconsin four years ago, and she still can't quite understand some of the different pronunciations and phrases her new neighbors use. One of the biggest things is bog
4: or boggle instead of bag and bagel. If I handed you a bottle of Mountain Dew, Mm. what do you call that? So this is the Coke pop soda discussion? Mm -hmm. Ah, it's tricky because, honestly, everywhere I've lived, it's been different.
10: It is. What
4: about M-I-L-K? Oh, yes. So I'm totally a milk, and I hate when people say milk. I cringe. (laughs) I feel like there's another one where it's, oh, pillow instead of pillow. Yes.
10: Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I mean. It's pretty clear. Grace and I got fired up talking about the way people talk. We knew we weren't the first to notice these differences, so we went on a little field trip. We approached people around downtown Milwaukee to ask them questions about how they talk. So we're talking to Sam Wallman from Stone Creek Coffee. Hey Sam, and hey. Beth Merkel from Stone Creek Coffee. Hey Beth. Okay, Grace. We're going to do we met to this Chris pair of co-workers, Sam and Beth, in the Grand Avenue Mall. Grace was carrying a few sheets of paper with her. Written on them were some of the words she thought would be most telling of the Wisconsin accent. Here's how Sam and Beth fared in our little survey. So what's the first one? Ooh,
7: always soda. Never pop
10: <laughs> Yeah, soda Why? Because it's soda I don't know
4: What's our next just one, just Grace?
10: Okay, okay This ones You just have to pronounce this Bag Bag Bag
4: <laughs> You guys are trying so hard No, I don't say bag I don't say, I say bag Like bay? Bag I want to say bag
10: But I know I definitely say bag Here's your next one It's a pronouncing one Milwaukee Milwaukee uh, <laughs> uh, uh. Why do you do that? Milwaukee,
7: is it m-u-h w-a-u-k-e-e are you
10: from here
11: where are you from here (laughs) i just
10: enunciate (laughs) most everyone we talked to got just as heated as sam and beth plenty of people have strong opinions about how we're supposed to say certain words and even though it bugs grace she finds the whole thing fascinating and a bit endearing i think that
4: sort of minnesota or like Wisconsin sound is so friendly it's not harsh and fast like sometimes you know east coast can sound so it's really pretty even though it's fun to kind of make fun of especially when there's movies and tv shows out there that make it a caricature of a voice
10: so how did we end up with this Wisconsin accent in the first place there are a couple of ways to answer that question Here to explain is UW-Milwaukee linguistics professor Gary Davis.
12: Nobody thinks that they have an accent. Everybody considers their own language used to be the norm.
10: Dr. Davis says first, language evolves with history. Settlers established the city of Milwaukee with a variety of ethnic influences. German, Polish, Italian, Irish, and those influences seep into our grammar.
12: People who grew up in southeastern Wisconsin can usually make some sounds the German has that other American speakers of English might not be able to do. Mm -hmm. So people here can say things like schlitz, like the beer.
10: Another factor is proximity. Davis says,
12: you talk the most like the people you talk the most to. Even though we have sort of our preferred speech, we can modify it depending on who we're talking to. So you, you may not Talk to your parish priest exactly the same way you talk to your drinking buddies. We regulate that almost unconsciously.
10: But some of the way we talk, Davis says, is just plain habit.
12: You know, people have different words for different things. These are fairly natural developments, and uh, we do poke fun at people, but there's really nothing wrong with people who say
10: "dub bears. That could be a controversial statement on our air. As long as the
12: Packers beat the Bears, and it's okay to be a little bit generous to them.
10: Remember this isn't just a Wisconsin thing. Edward McClelland literally wrote the book on how to speak Midwestern. It's called How to Speak Midwestern. The Michigan native says he wrote it because he wants to build regional pride.
13: The Midwest has a reputation for being the bland, colorless middle of the country, and I wanted to point out that there's as much variety and as much color in Midwestern speech as there is in speech anywhere in the country.
10: In researching the Wisconsin accent, which he groups with Chicago and Cleveland in a category of speech he calls Inland North, McClellan found a lot of the same curiosities in verbiage that Grace and I had during our own experiment, including how we pronounce our city itself. He references a word made famous in the movie Wayne's World.
13: Well, I know Alice Cooper pronounced the name as Milwaukee. <laughs>
7: <That's laughs> so right. maybe that was the original
13: pronunciation. Could have been right even, for, even for all we land. know. Yeah. He probably, he probably was, and it got changed to Milwaukee.
10: Which brings us to the biggest question in this whole debate. If we don't really know whether we're saying things correctly, why does it matter? Why do people care so much? McClellan says it's all about identity. And because of that, he says, he hopes regional accents never go away.
13: Strong local accents are becoming less common than they used to be. You know, I think that there's become an attitude somehow that a strong regional accent mark a provincialism or... Or lack of education somehow, and, and I don't like hearing that, and I would like to see them you know, preserved as local color.
10: As for our Bubbler Talk question asker, Grace Supansic, although it might baffle her, she loves the way she's grown to speak as a Milwaukee transplant.
4: I mean, when I come home to Cleveland, my accent gets harder compared to when I'm here. I feel like I even sort of take on some of those Milwaukee tones. It still comes out, right, whether you notice it or not. If someone tells me I sound like I'm from
10: the Midwest, often it makes me feel good.
4: Yeah. I am. Yeah, I'm nice.
1: (laughs) I Um, love humanity. I'm from the Midwest. (laughs)
10: Let's be friends.
1: (laughs) Coming up, Lake Effect brings you more of the best of Bubbler Talk here on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.
0: Lake Effect continues on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Mitch Tyke,
1: And I'm Joy Powers. We're continuing our look back at some of our favorite Bubbler Talk pieces of 2017, including this next one by former WUWM reporter Aisha Turner.
8: Today's Bubbler Talk is rooted deep in Wisconsin history and the story of escaped slave Joshua Glover. He fled Missouri for Wisconsin in 1852 and was imprisoned in Milwaukee under the Fugitive Slave Law. You can see the story driving on Fond du Lac towards Milwaukee's downtown. A large mural spans the walls of the I-43 underpass. It depicts abolitionists storming the jail and helping Glover to escape to freedom in Canada. One of WUWM's listeners, Rocky Martinez from Waukesha, was curious about the mural.
14: You know, actually, when I was going to a ball game, I took my boy to the ball game. I'm like, oh, that's Joshua Glover.
8: A few years ago, Rocky enrolled in a race and ethnicity class at Waukesha County Technical College. He was given an assignment.
14: And... The instructor had us do a project and looking into local history. And that was one of the topics that we chose, was to look into the Underground Railroad here in Waukesha.
8: The only records he could find of abolitionists helping slaves were from Joshua Glover and Caroline Quarles, a woman who escaped to Wisconsin 10 years earlier than Glover. Rocky thought there was something strange. The picture of Caroline Quarles he found revealed that she was black but light-skinned. And there aren't any known photographs of Glover, only a black-and-white drawing that shows him as fair-skinned with European features in a 19th-century suit jacket. Rocky wondered, were those abolitionists only helping light-skinned enslaved people? Maybe they were only helping slaves they identified more with. And if the Glover drawing is accurate, why is he depicted as dark-skinned with coarse hair and African features in the Fond du Lac mural?
14: But that's, that's what I remember from the project. I'm not like a historian or anything like that, you know?
8: To get some clarity, I took Rocky to meet with Claiborne Vincent from the Wisconsin Black Historical Society and Museum. Rocky showed him the drawing of Glover.
14: So this is the only image that we could find of him. Yes. And we don't know if that was accurate or not. It's not.
8: The museum so commissioned the Freeway Underpass mural in 2006.
15: That is a European uh, version of uh, Joshua Glover, but uh, in actual um, description of Glover, he is a worker, worked uh, meals, cut down trees, he has dirty clothes, Uh, he is in no way polished that that image uh, projects.
8: So if that drawing of Glover is inaccurate, that means Rocky's hypothesis that only light-skinned slaves were helped isn't true. Claiborne explained that many of the white people to settle in Wisconsin were coming from European nations where they or their families had been serfs. They arrived in the United States deeply opposed to servitude. This abolitionist spirit became ingrained in the state's
15: culture. The, the state of Wisconsin goes on record as the only state in the entire union to defy the fugitive slave law. Now, that's major. It, it is major. And so. in, in Waukesha is a regional headquarters for all of this activity. So then, so then we would have been able to find more cases other than Joshua Glover and well, Carolyn. There are, many more. Are there, are there? many more. are there? There are many more. If I were to guess, there's at least four to 500. Oh, really? Uh, uh, Runaway slaves. That didn't mean that cities and, and areas like Waukesha liked people of color. What it meant was that they did not want to tolerate with servants, slavery, and so they fought in any way they possibly can.
8: At the end of their talk, the men exchange email
14: addresses. Keep reading. That's all you can do. Keep reading. Keep asking questions.
8: Claiborne promised to send along some books for Rocky to check out to learn more about Wisconsin's Underground Railroad.
1: I'm Joy Powers. And
10: I'm Rachel Morello. We recently ran across a Bubbler Talk submission that captured both of our interests.
1: It came from this guy, Jason Gessner. He's originally from Illinois.
13: I grew up in Rockford. And from an early age, basically decided that I was going to move to Chicago as soon as I was done with school.
10: Jason did live in Chicago for a while, until he and his wife had a couple of kids and decided their family needed a change. So they picked a place nearby, a place they'd heard nothing but good things about, Milwaukee.
1: And this is something that actually Rachel and I have both done. Before coming to WUWM, I worked at a radio station in Chicago, and I grew up in a border town in Wisconsin and had family in Chicago.
10: And I went to school in Chicago, but I'm originally from Milwaukee and moved back here a couple of years ago.
1: Our question asker Jason has now lived in Bayview for about 12 years, and he loves it. But there's an attitude he's observed in his neighbors that he still doesn't quite understand.
13: You know, I started hearing some of the terms for Illinoisans, and I had just never really known that there was sort of a bitterness about Illinois. Um, when I was growing up, friends and family, like, really loved Wisconsin. The outdoors are beautiful here. Like, we'd come up go fishing or see a ball game or whatever. It just sort of took me aback a little bit when I learned that there was this sort of, I don't know, I guess, negative stereotype of, of Illinoisans coming up and, you know, rampaging around Wisconsin.
10: You may have heard some choice nicknames tossed back and forth across state lines. Wisconsinites are cheeseheads. Illinoisans are fibs or fish tabs. Both terms made up of four-letter words we can't say on the radio.
1: And Rachel, I know you have a very particular experience with Wisconsin-Illinois trash-talking, one that some of our listeners could probably relate to.
10: I do. I'd say there are a few topics that really get people riled up on either end of the I-94 corridor, namely driving and football. I'm a Packers fan, and when it comes to the NFL, there's no greater rivalry than that between the Green Bay Packers and the Chicago Bears. And I'll note for the record, Joy, that the Packers lead that series with more wins than their legendary rivals.
1: (laughs) Well, one of the most Chicago people I know would love it if those stats shifted in his favor. His name is Justin Kaufman. He's the host of the download on WGN 720 in Chicago. And like many of his fellow Bears fans, he has quite a few opinions about the Packers.
16: I really, really hate the Green Bay Packers. I don't know why. I really don't. I mean, they're a great football team and they don't do anything wrong, but I, that green and yellow and I think it's in my head. I think it's from my dad, I think it's from my grandpa. Like I don't know what it is, but but there's something about it that it's the only time that I actually show any emotion while watching a football game. If the Bears are playing the New Orleans Saints tomorrow or, or the Tampa Bay Buccaneers or the, even the New York Giants are like if they lose like, "Meh, I'll move on with my life." The Packers, there's a twenty minute hangover. There's like there's something where I got I need time. I need space. I need patience. You know, I need to do some meditations, and deep breathing.
1: Hearing that, what are your thoughts, Rachel? Well he's definitely got some
10: interesting opinions, but I'd beg to differ on several of those points and actually reverse them back in his direction in the direction <laughs> of his team.
1: The weird thing about Justin, he's not originally from Chicago. He's from a small town in Illinois called Wonder Lake, which is really close to the Wisconsin border. It's also not that far from where I grew up in Lake Geneva. But whereas I call myself a Wisconsinite growing up, Justin very much identified with Chicago.
16: I always thought of myself as a Chicago suburb. So even being closer to Wisconsin, 15 minutes as opposed to an hour and 45 minutes from the city of Chicago i would uh, thump my chest as if you know if you mess with chicago you're messing with me and i'm like <laughs> as i mean i'm i could i could walk to the wisconsin border so it's a strange thing to think about that even though we were the proximity was off and we were so much closer to wisconsin i still still to this day consider myself true blue
1: chicago justin's parents now live in my hometown and he's heard a lot of the same stereotypes as our question asker jason They drive too fast.
10: They act entitled when they come up here.
1: They act recklessly in our backyard. But ultimately, it seems to come down to one thing.
16: I think every knock on someone from Illinois is the fact that we kind of use and abuse Wisconsin.
1: What's funny about my family is that both of my parents are actually from Chicago. Not just my parents, but also my grandparents. So although I consider myself a Wisconsinite, my mom, Janelle, has lived here for 30 years but still identifies as a Chicagoan. I called her a few days ago and we dissected some of the complaints we hear about people from Illinois. And it turns out most of these are the same complaints she has about tourists.
2: The tourists make me crazy. They're on vacation when they come here, so they don't care that they are putting trash and God knows what else on my lawn and under my bushes and <laughs> all kinds of stuff.
10: Somebody else with an interesting perspective on the Wisconsin Illinois divide is Milwaukee Alderman Bob Bauman. Bauman grew up in Edgewater, which is a neighborhood on the north side of Chicago. In fact, he owns the duplex he grew up in, so he's still an Illinois taxpayer. But he's lived in Milwaukee for 40 years and has made a career out of bettering this city. One way he says he does that, by taking cues from bigger cities like Chicago.
6: It's a matter of sharing ideas and seeing best practices in other cities and learning how they go about solving a problem and then adopting it to our particular circumstances here.
10: Bauman has used some policies he's noticed in Chicago as models for ideas he's kickstarted as a lawmaker here in Milwaukee. For example, the Common Council implemented a traffic-calming ordinance for residential neighborhoods, putting things like speed bumps and traffic circles in place to slow down traffic on side streets. That idea came from Chicago.
1: Milwaukee has an ordinance to allow honorary street names, another concept it modeled after Chicago policy. And Bauman says right now he's working
10: on a new affordable housing initiative, and he's looking at Chicago's methods for guidance. Basically, the alderman's argument is that the two cities should view themselves as complements, not competitors.
6: We share the same weather. We share the same lake. We really share the same basic demographics. We we should work together more than we should compete. Trying to encourage my colleagues and trying to encourage the overall sort of uh, Milwaukee culture to think a little bigger than what it has historically done because we're in a competitive environment in terms of competing for talent and employees and businesses that often follow the employees and follow the talent.
1: Success in business and industry is a big reason many cite for why the two cities should work to cooperate wherever possible.
10: Joel Rast teaches at UW-Milwaukee, where he also oversees the university's urban studies program. He says the key to cooperation is an expanded view of a concept called regionalism.
17: It's something that people started talking about as businesses became more and more mobile and globalization became more of a phenomenon. So the concern was that businesses are looking at different places to locate and if municipalities are all kind of fighting with each other over you know, trying to get these businesses, then that kind of makes the region as a whole potentially look bad and it may drive businesses someplace else.
1: The thinking now is let's all pull together and try to present a united front.
10: Rast says the two states could have benefited from banding together on the opportunity to pursue Foxconn, the tech company setting up shop in southeastern Wisconsin.
1: But the way state lawmakers pursued the deal, Wisconsin will pay the incentives, while both Wisconsin and Illinois residents will likely supply employees to the factory due to its location near the border. Rast
10: says it would help both neighbors to cooperate on future deals as well.
17: I mean, it would have been nice to have this conversation earlier on with Illinois, if you know, something like that had been possible earlier on, to talk about you know, transportation infrastructure, for example, and you know, other um, issues maybe that we could have worked with them on. From what I saw of this deal, it didn't seem like there was much of an effort to coordinate with Illinois at all. At least if there was, I didn't read about it.
1: But when we're talking about the frustration between Wisconsinites and Illinoisans, it all seems to be a little one-sided.
10: Especially when it comes to Chicagoans and Milwaukeeans. Here's Justin Kaufman again.
16: Living in Chicago, there's, there's something about being in a cosmopolitan city, a big city, where we love the concept of a second city you know, to be the underdog to New York. But anyone who, who might be an underdog to us, we're like, we don't care.
2: Although I am told from Milwaukee people that the rivalry between Milwaukee and Chicago exists in the minds of Milwaukeeans, in the mind of Chicagoans, we don't even think about them. We knew Wisconsin existed in Chicago. It is, we're, we were very single-minded. If we thought about another city in Chicago, uh, we'd think in terms of, well, New York. Right. That would have been more of a rivalry to us than Milwaukee or
1: Wisconsin. My mom, the self-professed Chicagoan, appears to be right. This regional rivalry doesn't seem all that mutual. It seems more like an inferiority complex on the part of Milwaukee. And when it comes to Chicago versus New York, well, New Yorkers don't seem to care too much about their smaller rival either. So this type
10: of animosity is not unique. New Englanders have a famously contemptuous relationship with the people of Boston. Minnesotans poke fun at their rural neighbors in Iowa. And plenty of European nations have their own regional conflicts. But around here, there's one prevailing matchup that we all seem to believe in.
1: The one rivalry we've been able to pin down is Bears versus Packers. Oh,
2: absolutely. Bears versus Packers. That's a fact. (laughs) That's a fact.
1: The Bears versus the
2: Packers. That is a rivalry.
0: A short break, then Lake Effect returns with more of the best of bubbler talk here on 89.7 WUWN.
1: Blake Effect now on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers.
0: And I'm Mitch Tyke. Today we're bringing you the best of bubbler talk from the past year. The East Coast this week has been struggling with the effects of a strong winter storm, but here in Wisconsin, we're used to a January with snow and Arctic temperatures. Milwaukee is the kind of place where people eat frozen desserts year round, especially frozen custard. And that's where we start this part of our look back.
2: Hi, my name is Sarah Rishu. I'm calling in from San Francisco. My question is, why is frozen custard such a big deal in Milwaukee?
0: We don't typically get a lot of questions from San Francisco, but as you might expect, there is a reason Sarah got in touch. She is a Milwaukee area native with a frozen custard history.
2: It was my summer job. I worked there for five years as a teenager at both Hefner's and Out and Out in Cedarburg.
0: To figure out the answer to Sarah's question, we tracked down Bobby Tanzillo, co-author of the seminal book on the subject called Milwaukee Frozen Custard. Custard. Actually, he was pretty easy to track down because he is also managing editor at On Milwaukee, whose offices are across the street from the WUWM studios in downtown Milwaukee. Anyway, we asked him that very basic question. Why is frozen custard such a big deal here versus anywhere else? I don't think
7: anybody really knows why. I mean, you know, we talk to all kinds of people. We talk to custard stand owners. We talk to the dairies that make custard mix. All these people who should theoretically know. Right. And everybody has some sort of theory Maybe, but
0: we, we are know, a dairy state. Right, we're
7: a dairy state, which seems obvious, you know, in in one way. But I think what what we got from talking to all these people, what the in the Venn diagram, that <laughs> overlapping section was that in Milwaukee, there's always been this among the custard stand operators, has been a commitment to quality first, you know, and then as part of that, cooperation. Do you know what I mean? And, and what happens is, you know, Joe Clark is the guy who opens the first custard stand here. And he hires a guy named Paul Gillis, who then goes and opens Gillies. And then he has a night manager named Leon Schneider, who then goes and opens Leon's. You know, I mean, and, and then, you know, Art Richter has the Milky Way and he needs somebody to manage the Milky Way. He hires Elsa Kopp, <laughs> who then opens her own place. You know, and, and while this is going on, Leon is helping all these other people at the same time, you know, and Leon's, you know, uh, trained Al who opens Al's, you know, he, Trudy who opens Trudy's and, you know, he also, they were never really in competition with other custard stands. They wanted other, other custard stands to serve a quality product because they wanted people to associate custard with being a quality product. So when somebody, and he would say, you know, somebody would drive, past here and see that we sell custard. And if they've had custard in the past and it's good, they'll stop and have custard. If they've had custard in the past somewhere else and it's bad, they'll just keep
0: driving. So the guy who spent months trying to track down the answer of why frozen custard is such a big deal in Milwaukee says the answer is no one really knows. Unlike frozen custard itself, that is kind of unsatisfying. But as Bobby Tanzillo says, there are a lot of things that make the custard scene special, like the cooperation between the big three, Cops Gillis Gillison, Leon's. But maybe another important question to ask is what makes frozen custard special or at least distinct from other frozen dairy desserts? We found someone to help us.
13: My name is Bill Klein, and I am the uh, plant manager for the Babcock Hall Dairy Plant, which is on campus here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison.
0: Klein offered a definition.
13: In order to be called a custard, you need to have 1.4% egg yolk solids. So it's got to have that. But beyond that, it has to meet the definition of ice cream, which is at least 10% milk fat, no more than 100% overrun, and 20% total solids. So if you compare it to ice cream, really the only difference is it's got you know that egg yolk added to it. And the egg yolk is added for both flavor as well as an emulsifier.
0: In case you aren't familiar with a couple of those terms, overrun is the amount of air whipped into a dairy dessert, and an emulsifier is something that allows two ingredients to mix together. But Klein says when it comes to the soft custard you get on a summer evening in Wisconsin, there is another key factor in play.
13: It's right off the machine, so it's served warm as opposed to Uh, Where five degrees is what normally you find dipped ice cream at. Soft serve is generally about 20 degrees.
0: And that turns out to be one of the important elements in Milwaukee's frozen custard culture, seeing the custard come right out of the machine. In an era in which so much manufacturing is automated, frozen custard makers say a large part of the appeal for customers is in seeing the employees pouring the mix into the top of the gleaming steel machines and seeing the river of custard come out the front. Ron Schneider owns Leon's, the shop his dad founded on Milwaukee's South Side in 1942. He says it would be possible to automate the process, but...
7: I think that would be a negative thing to not have employees for us because frozen custard originated on Coney Island. It was a carnival treat. And when you go to a carnival or a state fair, especially if there's a midway, much of the attraction is what's going on. You go to the uh, saltwater taffy booth, and they have the machine there pulling the taffy. And when that thing's pulling taffy, there's a crowd. As soon as they turn it off, take the taffy off, everybody walks
0: away. It's the same at COPS. Dan McGuire is the second-in-command at the COPS on Blue Mound Road in Brookfield. People, when they come in here and they see the machines running,
13: it's total fascination, and yeah, it's a great, great product when it's fresh. These
9: machines, uh, three of them out there are, are actually, I would guess, to be over 70 years old.
0: That second voice was Dick Mac McGuire, Dan's dad. He managed the original cop stand at 60th and Appleton, which Elsa Cops' son, Carl, sold to him in the 1970s. He moved it to Brookfield in 1991. Mac McGuire says there is a lot that's special about frozen custard here. The taste, the gleaming machines, the flavor of the day idea the Cops pioneered. But he believes it all comes back to the relationship between the people in the business.
9: It's almost like a, a brotherhood also because... This is the hotbed for frozen custard, and when you have only so many few places that make it, you know, we know who who each other are. Ron Schneider has been a friend for a long time. He supplies us with custard machine parts. His dad helped Mrs. Kopp getting get in business. So we have a friendly relationship with the other people in the business.
0: But maybe there is something even simpler at work. Tom Linscott owns the place that everyone calls Gillies, but is really called Gillis. It is the oldest frozen custard stand in Milwaukee at 75th and Blue Mound. Linscott remembers a lesson he learned from a consultant with whom he worked years ago.
2: He said, hey, you have no idea what you have here. He goes, people make it a point to stop by you and part with their resources. He goes, you're not selling tires. You're not selling car service where it's like, I don't want to spend the money on this. He goes, you're not going to the dentist <laughs> where people have phobias. He goes, they are selectively choosing to go there. I'm like, you know what? Another simple thought process that I should be grateful for on a more uh, daily basis, you know?
0: So, Sarah Rachu, that is what makes frozen custard in Milwaukee special. The real question is, can you get custard where you live in the Bay Area?
2: You know, surprisingly, we can. We had some food trucks down at our Civic Center station when I first moved here. I was so excited.
0: And, and how does Bay Area frozen custard stack up against what you remember back here?
3: You know, it's just, it's not the same. I'm WEWM's Mayan Silver with a question from Alina Katz of Glendale. I've heard about ice cream cocktails
4: in Milwaukee and wondering if there's something uniquely Milwaukee about them.
2: Did you decide idea, honey, Would you like?
15: I think we'll
9: do a pink squirrel. And? We're gonna share.
2: Okay you can share
3: now but we're not gonna have sharing in the future. Okay. okay. That's pink Shirley squirrel? Zeller taking an order from Milwaukee sure. food writer Lori Frederick and her husband Paul. Zeller is co-owner and a waitress at the Bayview bar called At Random. It's a place that feels a little like walking into a time warp. A dimly lit interior, twinkling lights, lounge music, nogahide booths, and a curmudgeon style. And yes, blended in ice cream drinks that, as Lori Frederick says, became popular post-World War II. The ice cream
8: drinks, a lot of them have been around in Wisconsin for a very long time. I mean, they became popularized, I think, by the supper club, where the idea was you came, you sat at the bar, you grabbed your brandy old-fashioned. Um, in the meantime, you know, you order your food, you go to your table, you eat your steak and your potatoes. And then you come back to the bar at the end and have some sort of dessert. And usually that dessert is an ice cream drink. So there's this sort of full circle that it begins and it ends with the bar.
3: Behind at Random's bar, Shirley's son Randy says that customers who order ice cream drinks there have the same idea as those in a supper club.
7: It's usually a good after dinner drink. You get a lot of after dinner
6: people coming in for ice cream
3: as he scrapes a drink out of the blender and puts whipped cream on it. He talks about the signature butter cookie on the straw. How many cookies do you think you've put on drinks over your lifetime?
17: <laughs> probably a thousand or more at least. Huh?
3: <laughs> That's probably underselling it.
17: Uh, you're probably right. <laughs>
3: Randy's father, Ron Zeller, opened at random after working at another classic Milwaukee cocktail bar, Bryant's. They don't put cookies on the ice cream drinks there, But Bryant's current owner, John Dye, explains what's uniquely Milwaukee about the almond-flavored, rose-colored pink squirrel that Lori and Paul ordered. As far
13: as we can figure, it was invented in the late 30s or early 40s by Bryant Sharp, who started Bryant's Cocktail Lounge. It coincided with the invention of the blender, and uh, Bryant picked up the use
0: of the blender right around then.
13: We don't know if the cream came first, and then they're like, hmm, let's use ice cream, or if, because this is Wisconsin, they started using ice cream, and then for those people outside of Wisconsin, they could just use cream, <laughs> so.
3: Brian came up with the Pink Squirrel during a cocktail competition.
13: And he invented three fairly famous ice cream drinks, Pink Squirrel, the Banshee, which is a banana-flavored ice cream drink, and then the Blue Tail Fly, which is sort of a, this delicious blue ice cream drink with an orange flavor.
3: Back at At Random, Lori says these Milwaukee traditions are here to stay.
8: You know, ice cream and booze, most people think that's a good idea.
3: And Alina Katz would agree. I think it's a fantastic idea.
1: (laughs) One last break, then Lake Effect continues our look back at our favorite Bubbler Talk pieces from the last year. That's next on 89.7 WUWM. continues on Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers.
0: And I'm Mitch Tyke. We're wrapping up our look back at some of our favorite bubbler talks from 2017. If you've been listening in, we've already revisited Milwaukee's abolitionist history, its obsession with frozen custard, and the origins of its most prominent nickname, the Cream City.
1: Our next piece asks and answers a provocative question about a foul community here in Milwaukee, or really the lack thereof.
18: I'm Bonnie Norris. This week's bubble talk question comes from listener Phil Lopayoker. He wants to know where are the pigeons? When we asked him what he meant by that, he explained he's noticed a distinct lack of what some people unkindly call flying rats here in Milwaukee.
13: I was listening to like a podcast and they were like talking about how, you know, animals and cities and stuff and uh they ended there, like, What color do you think a pigeon's eyes are? And I was like, I
17: have no idea.
13: I'll go look for one or like when I'm walking I'll see one, I'm sure and I <laughs> never run into them in Milwaukee. You know, you go to other cities in Chicago, and they're like everywhere.
18: Once Phil brought it to our attention, we noticed the same thing, or lack of thing, really. So I called biologist and ornithologist Dr. Peter Dunn, who teaches at UWM, and I asked him if he knew why Milwaukee is missing its pigeons.
13: Well, I uh, initially thought Milwaukee is such a clean city. <laughs> uh, maybe I shouldn't say this about Chicago or New York, but my impression is that Walking through those downtown areas, there's a lot more litter and, you know, food waste The pigeons would be uh, finding attractive to feed on.
18: But Dunn dug a little deeper. And while it's true that Milwaukeans tend to leave less on the ground for the pigeons to feed on, there are other reasons we don't see very many of them here. One is that there aren't so many people breeding pigeons anymore. And then there are the falcons.
13: There's been a huge increase in some of the predators of pigeons since the early 70s when DDT was banned. We have peregrines, five nesting sites the peregrines around Milwaukee now. And the hawks. Cooper's hawks. Those are the birds that you see around the east side quite a bit. They're just flying between houses really low and checking out bird feeders.
18: As everything in nature has a purpose, I wondered what ecological role that pigeons play. Dunn says they're kind of avian janitors.
13: They're pretty much dependent on humans. They probably feed quite a bit on seeds that are found in livestock waste, so uh, they do have a role of cleaning up after us.
18: People who study pigeons point out they're not your typical bird brains, which is to say they're smart and highly evolved. So why do they have such a bad reputation? Again, I turn to Peter Dunn, who says it's a bit of familiarity breeding contempt.
13: They can get pretty ugly looking when they're hanging around in the trash and some that have their feathers all matted because they've gotten garbage stuck in their feathers and they haven't cleaned it off.
18: Dodging their droppings doesn't endear them to us either. Well, I got back in touch with Phil Lopayoker to let him know he was right.
13: All right, thank God.
18: He was surprised to learn that the reason he wasn't seeing pigeons was because of the citywide increase in hawks and falcons.
13: Wow, that's like a a cool cause and effect kind of thing going on there. Most importantly, I'm not crazy, at least as far as pigeons are concerned. They gross me out still, but that's very interesting.
18: So what was Phil going to tell his friends?
13: that I'm right. That's that's what I'm going to say. I'm not even going to explain it. I'm just going to say I'm right. It's on the radio and it's official.
19: I'm Rachel Owens. This week's question comes from Nancy Leafblad of Brookfield.
2: All the years I've lived in Milwaukee and driven north on water, just south of Wisconsin, there's a building on the east side that has ladybugs, and I've wondered why the ladybugs are there.
19: They're hard to miss, crawling down the west side of the Milwaukee building at 622 North Water Street. The key to understanding the bugs, though, is knowing the mastermind behind them, John J. Burke, founder of Burke Properties, which owns and manages the building. The company is now run by his daughter, Wendy Burke. She explains how the bugs landed there.
20: They've been hanging there since about July of 1999. My father had a sign maker, who he had worked with in a prior business venture, make those ladybugs for them. They're about six feet tall and about three feet deep.
19: And that's just as John Burke designed them. The ladybugs were his brainchild and built to his exact specifications, right down to the paint job. Made of fiberglass, they're durable, yet light enough for a three-person crew to install. And Wendy Burke should know she was on that crew.
20: Early one morning in July, he and I, well, he had a friend on a cherry picker down in the street. We were hoisting those things up from an open window on the sixth floor and then securing them to the building. Was it it do-it-yourself or?
19: (laughs) (laughs) John Burke even decided where the bugs should land on the building, adjusting them on the fly until he felt he had them just right. But why put them there in the first place?
20: At the time, in the city, there was some conversation going on about what is decoration and what is art. There were some artists who were very much opposed and were very verbal about how much they did not like the ladybugs. (laughs) And my father was adamant that... Art is in the eye of the beholder, and he just thought they were cool.
19: The ladybugs aren't the only art on or in the Milwaukee building either. Take the elevator up to the second floor and you walk into a modern art gallery, which also houses the offices of Burke Properties. One of the most stunning pieces by world-renowned Milwaukee artist Mark Sigeon is a lifelike sculpture of a young woman kneeling with her eyes closed, titled Meditation. Still, the ladybugs loom large, literally. The lowest of the three hangs just outside the office where John Burke used to work. It's not hard to imagine him enjoying his unique view from his desk of the inside of the bug. But what did he think about how they appeared to most of us from the outside? Wendy Burke recalls his reaction when he first saw his completed creation.
20: There was a restaurant called Mannequins uh, across the street in the floor of the Chase Tower. And he was sort of like Christo, sitting back and admiring his handiwork. And I think probably that same day, Mayor Norquist walked by and said, Hey, John, like the bugs. So he was very pleased with his art, his public art.
19: Our question asker, Nancy Leafblad, seems to also be pleased. They just make me smile
2: when I go by there, and I do that a lot, and it's just fun to know why they're there.
19: Before wrapping up our conversation, I asked Wendy Burke if there was anything else we should know about the ladybugs.
20: No, just enjoy and give us a call if they're not lit. (laughs) (laughs) We try to stay on it. The Hone Bridge. It's a Milwaukee landmark
11: and a daily route for many of the city's commuters. But perhaps you've noticed a certain smell that infiltrates your car as you're driving. Oh, Mm. Oh, what is that? Mm. Oh, that's not good. I'm Audrey Nowakowski, and for this week's Bubbler Talk, a listener named Terry asked, what's that rotten egg smell driving over the Hone Bridge? Well, to find out, I took a trip to Jones Island to meet Bill Graffin. Public Information Manager for the Milwaukee Metropolitan Sewage District.
9: It's a tough call where exactly it's coming from, but when you're driving over the bridge over the wastewater treatment plant, it's probably a good guess that it's coming from here. Jones
11: Island has been home to MMSD's wastewater treatment facility since 1926. In other words, it's where your sewage goes when you flush the toilet, run your garbage disposal, or spit toothpaste down the drain. However, it turns out that that crap you smell is actually doing
9: a lot of good. We treat wastewater here, and we also have a distinctive smell that comes from the production of Milorganite, which is a a fertilizer that we've been making since 1926 and selling around the country.
11: Milorganite stands for Milwaukee Organic Nitrogen. This organic fertilizer is made with that wastewater you smell. Here's how. First, the screening process takes out all large objects from the untreated water. Then it's off to the settling tanks where oil and grease float to the top and solids sink to the bottom. The third step is a secondary treatment that involves microscopic organisms,
9: also known as the good bugs. Those organisms, or bugs, eat organic material out of the water. They clean the water. They're the workhorses of wastewater treatment. And we take a certain percentage of those bugs out of the mix every day and reintroduce the rest back into the tanks to clean the water and we take those bugs and we put them into this big, huge building, the malorganite factory, and we squeeze the water out of them. We put them in these huge dryers and tumble them to certain pellet sizes, and then they're sold as fertilizer around the country.
11: What water is left from the treatment process is disinfected with the chlorine byproduct that is then neutralized before it's returned to
9: Lake Michigan. The water that goes out of the plant is much, much cleaner than what comes in. And, uh, you know, we have a pretty good track record meeting uh, treatment standards that are above and beyond what the state and the federal government calls for.
11: So depending on the wind direction or even the season, Bill Graffin says the smells are just a part of living in the city.
9: Well, there's no question that it is a a beneficial reuse, but uh, if it's an odor to someone, it's an odor. You can't explain your way out of that one. Um, If people don't like it, uh, well, <laughs> I, I don't know what to say uh, except we're looking at it, we're trying to come up with some solutions here.
11: And if you are skeptical about using biosalads such as Milorganite in your garden or on your lawn, Graffin says that it's 91 year history and counting speaks for its quality.
9: People love Milorganite, I mean the golf course superintendents, the master gardeners, people who really know their stuff know it's a great product and it's a slow release. Uh, Fertilizer that uh, just is is fantastic. You know, we call it goof proof because you really can't screw it up.
11: But if the smell truly does bother you, you can always plug your nose as you drive over the bridge. Just remember to keep the other hand on the steering wheel.
9: Support for this
16: season's Bubbler Talk comes from Educator's Credit Union, a member-owned credit union dedicated to helping those who live and work in southeastern Wisconsin make informed financial decisions. More at ecu.com. What's got you scratching your head about the Milwaukee area? Submit your question at wwmcom slash bubbler talk.
0: You've been listening to Lake Effect. I'm Mitch Tyke
1: And I'm Joy Powers. Thanks so much for tuning in today, and we hope you enjoyed the best of Bubbler Talk. We'd like to thank the entire staff here at WUWM for all of their hard work on this series.
0: Joy and I produce Lake Effect along with Audrey Nowakowski, Bonnie North, and Mayan Silver. Additional reporting comes from Marty Michelson, Rachel Morello, and Susan Betts.
1: We get web support from Michelle Maternowski, and Jason Reeby is our studio engineer. Willie Porter wrote our theme music.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in, and I sure hope Hope you'll be with us again tomorrow and Sunday at 3 for Lake Effect Weekend on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.
1: Stay tuned. Fresh air is next. It's 11 o'clock.